Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today is a post-holiday relaxed fit kind of episode where I talk about some topics that have caught my interest the past couple of weeks. So listen on for some info on Saskatraz honeybees, raising chickens for meat and a duck species that seems to be growing in popularity. So before I get started, um, let's do a couple of homestead updates. Uh, We just had Thanksgiving. Uh, For those of you who celebrate, I hope you had a lovely and relaxing time with your chosen family, whether that's you and your animals or you and your big extended family. Um, I hope you got some downtime. My in-laws came from Florida to visit and I put on a big spread for everyone. I think I've mentioned before that my husband's family is British um, and and I'm very fortunate that um, his parents and his sister are wonderful people and we have quite a lot in common and we get on very, very well. And I do like to host for them and it's a lot of fun. So my husband does the turkey and the smoker outside and I do all kinds of sides like roast potatoes, roast parsnips, boiled carrots in lemon butter. I do a roast Brussels sprout dish with bacon and a mustard cream sauce. I should actually put the recipe on my blog because uh, people love it and my sister-in-law actually goes nuts for it so I make a huge vat of that. I did cornbread um, and then I I did buy a pie for my in-laws. I did a pumpkin pie. I bought a gluten-free apple pie for myself and I shared that with everyone and we had ice cream and we just caught up and spent time relaxing, played Uno, which is one of my favorite games. And um, I actually napped quite a lot, which was lovely and felt very decadent. So I hope um, everyone listening could say that they also had a wonderful Thanksgiving like I did. Um... While my mother-in-law was here, she gave me an advent calendar with tea in it. It's from the English Tea Shop, which is a British company. And each day is a little box with a linen tea bag. And and the teas are like white, green, oolong and herbal tisanes. And it's been a lot of fun because I don't drink like flavored teas usually so every day I try something different and they're very very nice and um, I really like this trend of advent calendars that don't just have chocolate in them Um, so my husband got a misfortune advent calendar and every day he gets a black fortune cookie And inside is some incredibly negative, snarky, hilarious fortune, which we've been having great fun with. Um, And I've seen advertised, there are some really fancy advent calendars now with like premium, like whiskey or bourbon or little wine or gin. And I really wanted to get them for some friends of mine. And um, then I actually saw how expensive they were. (laughs) And that, no, that's not going to happen. The ones I saw were like $150 for an advent calendar. And that's, that's a little much. Um, Doesn't really fit into my homesteading budget. Uh, (laughs) So um, I'm really hoping that as these kind of things take off, that maybe we'll see the price come down a little bit. Um, I have seen that uh, Aldi had some toy advent calendars which I also thought was a great idea uh particularly you know I'm celiac 
um, which basically means I can't have gluten. It's an autoimmune disease and it's triggered by ingesting gluten. And, um, you know, I, so I'm a little bit more aware of allergies. And if your child has an allergy, I could see a toy advent calendar being a lot safer than any kind of like, you know, chocolate or candy or whatever. Um, so that was very fun. Um, as for what's going on with the animals here, the chickens are almost done with their molts and they're looking so much better. Cracker, my white leghorn, who I was worried about, is almost back to full plumage. And so she's bossing all the girls around and is just happy in herself again. Uh, I've been hanging a cabbage in the coop once a week to help keep them entertained on cold days. It's nice added roughage as well, since um, I can't, you know, harvest weeds and other plants for them at this time of year. And I do give them, you know, fresh greens like um, kale and collard um, and sometimes baby spinach and stuff like that. But um, that's a bit more expensive. And I have it on hand because I have a tortoise, a Russian tortoise. So his main diet is leafy greens. And he's my priority there. So if I'm going to be investing in greens through the winter, he comes first and then the chickens get what's left. Um, oh, speaking of chickens, I counted up my egg money that I'd made for the year because I'm not going to be selling any more eggs now until the spring. And I was amazed to realize that I made $70 this year selling cartons just to friends and neighbors. Um, I have a very small yield compared to a lot of chicken keepers because I have older birds and I have rescued birds. So it really shocked the hell out of me to see that much money. Um, and I sell my eggs for $2 a dozen. Although one of my neighbors does insist on paying me $3 a dozen because she's very, very sweet. Um, and so I'm just, I'm super chuffed. I thought that was wonderful. And um, I've set that money aside and it's going to go into um, buying Christmas presents. So in other bird related news, um, I don't know if anyone listening has checked out the podcast, We Drink and We Farm Things. I'm always kind of behind. This podcast has been running for a couple of years now. It's quite popular. They're quite large. You know, they have um, uh, their own merchandise. Um, they have a Patreon. Uh, they're quite an established podcast. And it's a lot of fun. I do recommend uh, checking them out. Um, and it's basically what they say. They drink and they kind of catch up with each other and talk about what's going on on their farms. And recently, they had a fascinating discussion about turkey eggs and why we don't see more people eating them or selling them. So I would recommend looking up We Drink and We Farm Things and then check out episode number 88 entitled Membrane Doesn't Scare Me to listen in and hear what they have to say about the turkey egg. Uh, they cover things such as the nutritional content of a turkey egg, how often turkey hens lay, and whether keeping turkeys for their eggs could be considered economical, which, spoiler alert, it isn't. <laughs> um, but it was very interesting. It was very well timed with Thanksgiving, and I recommend giving them a listen. We actually did have a couple of mild days again. So of course I ran out and I checked on my bees and the hives are basically doing what I expect. Um, I have the one weak hive, one very strong hive and one which is kind of the middle of the road where they have a good population and they do seem strong but they are also taking advantage of the fondant that I've been putting in for them. 
Whereas my strong hive, it hasn't even touched the fondant. They haven't needed to. Um, Something I've been thinking about is if the weak hive does survive, and I don't know if it will, I'm going to be watching that queen, which is Queen Marka, very closely because I've been considering requeening her um, when she stopped laying in late summer while the other queens were still chugging ahead. But I wanted to give her a chance because she's a first year queen and it's not uncommon for first year queens to take a break um, or sorry, not even just first year, but it's not uncommon in late summer when it gets very dry and hot for queens to take a break from laying. So I want to give her a chance, but she is my last Southern Queen. My other two now are um, either, you know, a fifth generation Ohio Queen or um, raised from a Southern Queen's egg, but mated with Ohio drones. Um, so, and they're doing, you know, they've been doing a really, really good job. So I'm going to see what happens with um, my weak hive. So fingers crossed, I would be overjoyed if I could get all three through the winter. In sort of my news, I did complete the full hiking spree that I mentioned um, in my last episode. I finished that with my adventure whippet, Chappie, and I we got that done the week before Thanksgiving. I haven't actually turned in my form yet. And uh, what's kind of fun is you turn in your form and you get a little badge that goes on a walking stick that you get your first year. And then there's usually some kind of a cup, like little side gift, like a bumper sticker or something like that. Um, so I'm looking forward to turning that in because, um, you know, I haven't done it recently. I hadn't done it the previous year. And so it was really nice to get out there and, and accomplish something with one of my pups. I also mentioned in my last episode that I had to have some skin samples removed for biopsy. Well, uh, one of them came back as precancerous, so I'm actually having an excision performed today um, after I've recorded this episode. It's this afternoon, but by the time this episode goes live tomorrow morning, it will all be behind me. Uh, I'm not really worried about it. Um, my main concern is just the recovery time. I did notice that uh, because my biopsy sites are on my stomach, that the healing time has been a little longer and there were periods where it was relatively uncomfortable just because, you know, the skin on your stomach is always moving around um, as, as you move around. So I think it takes a little bit longer to heal and I am going to have stitches after this procedure. So we'll just have to see. Hopefully it won't be too bad. But it does mean that there is going to be no more swimming until the new year. And I am very bummed out about this. I know I mentioned this before. I really love to swim. It makes me feel good physically and mentally. And it's tough that I have to avoid it for the foreseeable future. But this is better than skin cancer, right? So I will follow my doctor's recommendations and I shall be a good person and not swim. So on to today's episode, which I have entitled Bees, Chickens and Ducks. Oh my. (laughs) So um, I did want to say that I wasn't sure that I was going to have this ready on time because with the holiday and then I had an annoying confluence of events, including 
accidentally ingesting gluten while I was at a restaurant with friends, which is really bad news for me as someone with celiac disease. And all this sort of stuff came together and I ended up absolutely smacked in the face with depression on Sunday. And I spent most of that day in bed sleeping because I just felt absolutely smothered by misery. Uh, I'm sure anyone out there who has had the misfortune of suffering from clinical depression knows what I mean. I am very fortunate though that I was rallying somewhat by the evening and I've committed to working on a better sleep and exercise schedule this week which is already helping a lot so thank goodness that I'm on the up and up Uh, but all of this is just to say that I didn't have as much time to put into my research as I like to before I record so if you could please just consider this an introduction to the topics that I'm about to discuss and I might come back to them in future I I hope I will and um, dig a little deeper into the research and then share what I find with you so um, thank you for bearing with me today and always and I really like to think that we're we're all learning together right I mean I I hope I've always been clear that I'm not an expert on anything this is my first year as a beekeeper. It's what my second year chicken keeping and kind of my second year homesteading. So we're all just here to learn. So thank you for being patient with me. First up today, something that caught my eye is the Saskatraz honeybee. So if you're a beekeeper, you might be noticing that people are already advertising package bee orders so they're encouraging you to put your order in now so you don't miss out when they start becoming ready in the spring and one of my local beekeeping supplies stores had an advert up for their packages and were mentioning that their queens are Saskatraz queens and it caught my eye for two reasons the first is that I've heard the name Saskatraz before and I always meant to look into it but I kept forgetting And the second is that they were claiming in the advert that only a handful of beekeepers and beekeeping businesses are approved to sell this race in the US, which definitely got my attention and was very intriguing. So I had to look into it. What is the Saskatraz honeybee? That's the first main question, right? What makes this bee special? Well, the Saskatraz honeybee is a particular race of bee that has been bred for honey production, overwintering and mite resistant. It is a very interesting example of careful and science driven breeding to produce a bee with strong genetics and desirable traits. Many beekeepers are familiar with popular bee races such as the Italian and the Carniolan and you might even be familiar with the Russian bee. There are also a a couple of um, human-created hybrid races, such as the Cordovan and the Buckfast honeybee. And each race is said to have a specific list of traits or characteristics that make it more or less desirable to the average beekeeper. There's also what I have affectionately called mutt bees in the past, which is what I have. Um, These are bees from a mixed lineage. It's often untrackable. And um, they're usually a product of local beekeeping in your area. So, for instance, let's say that the person you go to to get your nucleus colonies originally started with carniolans. 
but those hives produced their own queens, which mated with local drones, which could have been wild or captive. By captive, I mean belonging to other beekeepers. And over time, this hypothetical keeper will have genetically diverse hives that can no longer be called pure carniolans. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mutt bees are often well-suited to your local area, especially if they have a proven history of surviving your specific local weather conditions, whether that's long cold winters or long dry summers. And a lot of people who sell nucleus colonies are likely to have mutt bees, particularly if they're raising queens themselves. Um, That's not to say that there aren't people producing, you know, nucleus colonies of the different races because it absolutely is possible to do but if you're like me and you went to someone local you might have mutt bees so going back to the saskatraz bee um, because it was created by a very careful breeding and research program it is actually owned and is considered the property of meadow ridge enterprises in saskatchewan canada now this company partnered with um, OHB, which is Oliveres, I hope I said that right, honeybees of Orland, California, who now sell Saskatraz hybrids within the US. And if I'm understanding what I read correctly, all authentic Saskatraz hybrid bees within the US will come from OHB, which um, is basically the approved seller. And when you purchase from, say, another company who sourced their queens from OHB, you will receive a certificate of authentication to prove the genetics and to prove the link back to Meadow Ridge Enterprises in Saskatchewan, which currently is the only place to get 100% genetic Saskatraz bees. Now, the OHB bees are Saskatraz hybrids because what they have done is they sourced original Saskatraz bees from uh, Meadow Ridge Enterprises and they were virgins when they got them and then they mated them with local drones so drones local to their apiary in Orland California and this will increase genetic diversity and hopefully strengthen traits that are deemed desirable in the local, which in this case was California bee stock. So technically, when you see Saskatraz bees advertised in the US, what you're receiving is a Saskatraz hybrid queen. Now, if you're interested in reading the full account of how this honeybee was created, you will definitely want to check out saskatraz.com, which has the full list of information, including research papers on the entire project, which uh, goes all the way back to 2004. And I will link this on my blog. I'll also post the website for OHB, and I'm going to post my local supply store that's selling Saskatraz packages for anyone in Ohio who might be listening and is interested in giving this bee a shot. So here's a quick summary of this bee's creation. In 2004, the Saskatraz project was initiated with the intent to create a race of honeybee that produced large amounts of honey and also had the benefit of being mite and brood disease resistant. So mite resistance in this case was 
produced by refraining from the use of miticides and instead using a process of natural selection in an attempt to identify and populate those colonies that showed the most ability to survive varroa and tracheomite infestations. The project started as a collaboration between Meadow Ridge Enterprises, which is a large queen producer, and the University of Saskatchewan. The principal investigator is Albert J. Robertson, owner and CEO of Meadow Ridge Enterprises. Now, early on in the project, the Canadian bee stock they started with continued to fall to varroa mites. And so they decided to introduce Russian honeybee genetics, as Russian honeybees have shown some natural resistance and survivability to the varroa mite. So the stock that they chose for the Russian genetics came from a USDA research facility that had showed mite-resistant traits in the Russian bees. So it's not just anecdata, it's based on actual scientific study. The Saskatraz project team also reached out to researchers in Germany who were also working on varroa mite tolerant or resistant bees and they ended up purchasing some German bee semen to use in the Saskatraz project. So from this mix of Canadian, Russian and German honeybee genetics, the Saskatraz bee was eventually formed. Now, in terms of exactly how they got a bee that consistently produces the desired traits, there's a lot of information that they provide on what they did. So there was some what's called like backbreeding where they bred um, basically like the drones produced from one queen back to the queen. Um, but I honestly have to do a lot more reading and possibly ask my biologist husband for some help before I can really outline that because it gets kind of technical and there's a lot of history there but hopefully I'm kind of giving you a rough idea of what they did. So really simply put a queen producer and some scientists they wanted a strong healthy bee race that would consistently pass on traits of mite resistance and honey production and they used careful breeding and genetic tracking to accomplish this goal. And now we have the Saskatraz honeybee. I do really recommend reading everything available on this project on the website, which I mentioned earlier, because it is fascinating. And the fact that it was part of an actual, excuse me, scientific study means that there are published papers on this there is a ton of information about everything that they did all the gene tracking um, the downsides they experienced how introducing Russian and German genetics worked what happened when they introduced them etc it's really fascinating stuff and if you're like me and you just sort of nerd out when it comes to bees I think you'll really enjoy yourself it could be some nice holiday reading for you So all of this definitely piqued my interest and it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that I'm going to be ordering a package with a Saskatraz hybrid queen for the new year and I'm going to absolutely document every stage of that and how it goes and maybe I will be talking to you next year with good results about how that queen is doing for me. So let's, we'll have to wait and see. Next on today's agenda, we're going to be talking about raising chickens for meat. Thinking about 
getting packages for the new year made me think of any new projects that I might want to introduce on the homestead. And something that has been in my in the back of my mind a lot lately has been the possibility of raising chickens for meat. Now, considering I got into chickens by rescuing a hen I found in a parking lot, see episode one, um, it's no surprise that I'm a soft touch and I see my flock as pets who happen to lay very, very delicious eggs. And I knew from the very start of my journey with chickens that I wanted to focus on laying hens. Although raising meat birds was something that has always been of interest to me. Now, the most popular chicken race for me is the Cornish Cross, also known as the Cornish Rock. This is a hybrid chicken produced by crossing a Cornish with a white rock chicken, hence the name Cornish Rock. And the result is a fast-growing, heavy-breasted bird that can reach a slaughtering weight of a whopping 8 to 12 pounds by a mere 6 to 8 weeks. I mean, that's nothing. That is incredibly fast growth. And this meat is also considered to be more flavorful than that of a dual-purpose breed of chicken, which is a chicken that's bred to lay eggs and also to be eaten. Now, having seen Cornish cross chickens, I feel they're a pretty safe bet for me in terms of not getting attached, which is my number one concern with raising something that I'm eventually going to kill and eat. So because they grow so incredibly quickly, they're actually quite ugly birds because their chests are huge and they sort of sit most of the day because it rapidly becomes very hard for them to move the sheer girth and weight of their body around and although they're docile because they're not as active they also don't seem to be as interested in things that other chickens are Um, and by this I mean that you know if you have chickens and you change something in their coop or their run they're very interested you know they're always like what are you doing do you have food give me something and it seems as if Cornish cross chickens aren't really like that and I think this would help me you know, prevent having that kind of attachment to them. It also probably helps that keeping them for such a short time before you send them to slaughter is going to help as well, because you just don't have the time to really feel like, oh, that little one's called Jim, and uh, he always eats first, and I like the sound that he makes. You know, it's just, you have a bit more distance. Now, Cornish cross chickens are considered a broiler bird, and there are other breeds in this category, such as the Jersey Giant and the Freedom Ranger, the latter of which, of which, excuse me, was specifically bred to be a better forager, which would mean putting less money into their food, because generally speaking, broilers, due to their fast growth, eat a huge amount. But If you look at the market, the Cornish cross is the primary chicken used for meat. Now, thinking of um, dual purpose breeds, it's something that you do have to look at if you are thinking about a meat bird. But I personally have ruled them out. And the reason for this is is hugely shallow. Um, But most dual purpose breeds are very attractive or very fluffy chickens with sweet personalities. So take the Orpington. Now, this chicken is very popular today. Um, There are some rarer 
breeds of Orpington, like the English Orpington. And um, they're very popular in the show world, like the show chicken world. And they're very popular as pets. But this big bodied chicken was originally bred for the table as well as to be an excellent egg producer. And it's actually said that the Orpington is um, very flavorful and quite tender for a chicken. And um, the, but the fact that they're so sweet and they're so attractive means that I know that if I got Orpingtons with the goal to slaughter them, I just won't be able to do it. I'll get attached, I'll name it. And because it's also producing eggs for me, I'll constantly have an excuse to never slaughter that bird. Um, I'd have to have all roosters and my neighbors would hate me. So roosters are not currently an option. And the honest truth is that when I was dreaming back in Georgia of my perfect chicken flock, one of the birds that I selected was the English Orpington because I was super impressed by their egg production. I think they're beautiful birds. And also part of me would love to have one flock of just British breeds of chicken. I just think that would be wonderful. And it's it's still a future project for me that I really want to do. Um, I, I would just need more space for additional coops and more money for the coops. And also ideally, if I was getting into the more rarer and therefore more expensive birds, I would want a rooster so that I could produce um, chicks and have future generations available on my own homestead. But anyway, going back to part of why raising meat birds appeals to me is the issue of space. Since I'd only be raising the birds for such a short period of time, I don't have to invest in building a permanent coop and run to keep them safe from predators as I do with my egg layers. Instead, I could build a predator-proof chicken tractor with appropriate shelter for nighttime and then just house my meat birds in it until it's time for them to go off to slaughter. And because they grow so quickly, they would only be in the brooder inside the house for a short period of time before I could move them outside, which is great for me because I am unique. Well, I won't say that. I'm different to a lot of chicken keepers in that I don't really care for the chick stage. Having little peepy, fluffy things, yes, they're very cute, but they you know, they take up a lot of time, they're in the house, they're very dusty, they take up a lot of space, they need special cleaning and heat lamps and blah, 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 blah. And I'd have to constantly, do, you know, keep my dogs away from them. And it ends up being more than I really want to do. Chickens for me live outside and that's what I like about them. But if I only had to house chicks in the house for a very short period of time, then that's okay. I, I feel like that's a bit more bearable for me. But of course, that would mean I'd have to time things carefully so that the weather is mild enough for the birds to go outside because as uh, they get so big, Cornish cross chickens are very prone to heat stress and you don't really want them out there during the very, very hot days of summer. So that is a benefit that I've considered. Now, as for the actual processing of the bird, I have a couple of options in my area if I want to send out to have them butchered. Um, and I do want to send them out. And a big part of that is because when you go to kill a chicken, you need to break the neck 
or chop the head off or I recently found out about these things called killing cones which is a cone of metal you put the chicken head first into it you let them sit briefly so that the kind of all the blood drains to their head and it makes them docile and then you slit their throat or chop their head off and I just I can't see myself doing it um it's so physical that I feel that I would chicken out or that I would, oh no, that was a, oh God, that was a terrible turn of phrase. (laughs) Um, I feel that I would lose confidence or, um, (laughs) or I would do it wrong and hurt the bird more than I want to. I, I would want it to be as quick as possible. I don't want to cause any suffering. But once the bird is dead, I'm totally fine with handling the body you know I'm not squeamish at all as I've mentioned in previous episodes I you know I've performed necropsy which involves you know removing the skin and removing the organs and you know that's not an issue for me but it's the killing that is and I also have concerns about what follows killing the bird so I could pluck it and I could skin it but where on my property can I do this Um, I obviously I don't want to be doing it in my kitchen for sanitary reasons and I don't really have a convenient outdoor space that would work well for it either and then what do I do with the waste so once I've washed everything can that water which is soiled with you know blood and possibly you know entrails and other gross stuff can that go into my septic system or if it let it run off into the ground is that going to cause problems for the local ecosystem and the waterways or the swamp that I have well not exactly a swamp it feels like it but like I get a lot of water that builds up in the back of the woods is it going to cause a problem for that and then do I even have the time to do this Um, it can be a very time consuming process particularly if you've never done it before because you're learning a lot of new skills and I know it will be just me my carpal tunnel and a bad back so I don't really see it happening now I think sheer determination could get me through it but I also think I'd be pretty damn miserable and to be honest I would prefer to pay someone to handle everything for me particularly if they have the kind of experience which makes it a fast clean kill and then a very safe butchering process and because one of my local processors does accept small batches which would be all that I would have to give it makes perfect sense for me to take my birds there I mean maybe if I do this and I actually find that I'm really enjoying the process of raising my own meat birds I will get the supplies and um, I'll, I'll do the whole thing maybe I'll get them from chick to butchered bird and I do it all by myself um at the very least, I should probably price out how much it would cost to get all that equipment and then look at the time concerns again and then make a decision. Now, why do I want to raise my own meat birds? Some of it is just the difference of care and physiology between a broiler breed and my egg layers, which just makes me really curious about experiencing that like seeing what it's like to raise a chick for a broiler breed and I like trying new things I mean that's a huge part of what appeals to me about beekeeping and homesteading and everything Um, 
But I also find the idea of being directly involved in my food source very appealing. And I think that's why most people will start producing their own food. So when I started keeping chickens for eggs, I got a crash course in how many production breeds um, are treated. And it's it's not pretty. Um, I had known about what we call battery hens in the UK. Um, I think they're usually just called factory chickens here. Um, but I kind of assumed that the option for humanely produced eggs was always available when shopping. So you could go to your grocery store and if you saw like really, really cheap eggs with no like labels on them, you could be like, okay, that's probably from a battery or a factory. But then if you saw a label that said uh, guaranteed free range, that would be safe and you'd be confident knowing that you were getting eggs from healthy birds. But that isn't the case. It turns out that a lot of labeling on eggs means absolutely nothing. So to give you an example, um, as long as a chicken has access to the outside for a minimum of five minutes a day, you can claim that your birds are free range. And what's important there is the word access, because what this can basically mean is that there's a little door open, like a little chicken door open for a let's say 200 chickens now chickens have a pecking order and the low ranking birds are not going to be able to get out of that door because there's going to be a press so there could be birds in there who spend their whole life they never actually go outside but because you have that door open that counts as access and so you can say oh look they're free range now does that sound free range to you when you think about free range chickens is that what you're thinking of I don't think so and it gets even more complicated with labeling from there. Now, for info on understanding how eggs are labeled, at least in the US, you can check out a website called certifiedhumane.org. And um, I'm going to link to that on the blog so you can check it out. And it's an article which is entitled Decode Egg Labels. So it gives you a rundown of the various egg labels that you will see in the supermarket. And it lets you know what that actually means. So for me, raising chickens for eggs quickly went from being this fun and unusual pet keeping activity to actually feeling pretty damn good about where my eggs come from because I know my ladies are spoiled rotten. I know exactly how they're treated and that they're treated exceptionally well. And so I actually feel a sense of pride when they produce eggs for me. And um, kind of on the same train of thought, you know, I've I've been aware that factory farming is a very real concern when it comes to environmental issues and the ethics of how we raise our meat animals. I buy local when I can, um, which as a side note, if you have the grocery store Aldi, sometimes I hear people say Aldi, A-L-D-I, in your area, um, they're known as being, you know, a more affordable grocery store. But one of the things I like about them is that they actually source a huge amount of meat and produce locally, um, at least here in Ohio, I can say that. And um, that basically means that um, you have less of a carbon footprint because that meat wasn't trucked all over the US. And it also increases the chance that that's slightly more ethically sourced meat, although I'm not saying, like guaranteeing that it is. Uh, but that is one of the things that I do like about my local Aldi. 
So I do buy local when I can. And ultimately, I want to only buy from small local farmers who raise their animals humanely. I'd also very much welcome buying from homesteaders. But my impediment, like most people, has just been this sheer expense. Because yes, I want to support local farmers and I know that they're not raking in the big bucks. But when you do things ethically, when you do things well, it costs more. And if you're used to your budgeting, your grocery list based on what you pay at Publix or Kroger or whatever your grocery store is, then it's a big jump in expense to get from local farmers. And that's kind of what leads you to the beauty of homesteading is that we're taking back control of how we grow and raise our own food. We're investing from the ground up on our food. And as a homesteader, you can network with the locals in your area who might provide something that you don't. So for instance, I'm really hoping of finding someone local who raises their own pigs and turkeys next year. Um, If you happen to know someone in the Northeast Ohio area, you know, send them my way, leave me a comment. I would love to get in touch with them and talk to them about prices. Um, So going back to raising meat chickens, uh, benefits would be that I would know that those birds had a good life before they end up in my freezer. I can guarantee that they had access to the outside, they got to scratch in the grass, they ate a balanced and complete diet, and they were treated kindly right up until the end. And I would feel a lot better about eating that kind of chicken than I would from getting one from my supermarket. And another benefit for me personally is that I've been trying to reduce my single-use plastic consumption. Um, And just for anyone who's not super familiar with that term, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's any kind of plastic that you can only use once. It can't be recycled and it ends up in the landfill. So a lot of grocery bags, for instance, are single-use plastics. Um, Things like toothpaste tube, a lot of our, um, you know, body cleaning, body care products come in single-use plastic. It's, It's a big deal. And it's really hard to avoid. And I've been trying to tackle it as best I can for years. So I have my reusable material grocery bags. I use mesh produce bags that I can use over and over again and wash them between uses. And if I have the option between paper and plastic, I'll always go with paper. Or if there's glass over plastic, I'll always go with glass. Now, recently I've been trying even harder to cut back. So I'm looking at smaller things like I've started buying a deodorant that comes in a paper tube and I've been buying toothpaste powder to avoid the tube toothpaste. I even found mouthwash tablets, which um, interestingly enough, have thymol in them, which you might recognize as the primary ingredient of Apigard, which is a treatment for varroa mites. So I can say my mouth is varroa mite free. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I love The premise of the tablets, uh, they come in a, the first time you purchase them, you get a uh, container made of recycled plastic and it is guaranteed to last you for years and years and years. And then when you need to reorder, it comes, they come to you in a uh, recyclable paper bag. So you're cutting back on constantly buying bottles of like Listerine or whatever. All right, I'll link to the, um, the company in my blog because I think it's worth looking into 
But anyway, so that's a big deal for me. I'm trying to reduce my plastic consumption. And when you get chickens at the grocery store, they are always in single use plastic. And that stuff is going right into the landfill and eventually right into our oceans and killing like sea turtles and all kinds of sea life. And it's it's a big deal. And we need to start thinking about it and addressing it. But going back to raising chickens for me, here's some things that you might want to consider. These are things that I've been looking at. Uh, chickens bred for meat need a high protein feed and it can be more expensive than what you're used to buying for your egg layers. They're also especially vulnerable to predators because they're just not active and they don't roost because they get too heavy so they sit on the ground a lot and that means that you really want to make sure that even if it's a temporary enclosure it is predator proof. They're not known for being free rangers or good foragers, with the exception of the freedom ranger breed that I mentioned earlier. So access to the outside is more to supplement their diet and just kind of ensure healthy living conditions like fresh air. It's going to encourage them to move around a little more. They're also prone to breast blisters because they spend so much time sitting. So it's recommended that you keep a very close eye on their bedding, replace it daily, you know, spot clean it and just generally keep it a lot cleaner than you might do for an egg layer. You should also be aware that their sudden and rapid growth is unnatural. It's something that we have bred carefully into them. And as a result, it is really hard on their hearts. And this makes them prone to sudden death syndrome, which is pretty much what it sounds like. You come out and your bird's just dead and there was no warning, it's just gone. And this means that you might lose a few birds before it's time to butcher them. So I've seen it recommended that you buy uh, a couple of extra birds than what you ultimately want to end up processed. So let's say that your processing plant has a minimum of 25 birds, maybe buy 30 or 35, because you might lose some. And just I'm sure you all know this, but it's not recommended to eat chickens that you find dead. Just count them as a loss, throw them away. You don't want to risk it. So buy a couple of extra ones and see how you get on. If you happen to catch a case of marshmallow heart, you should know that it's actually very hard to keep broiler chickens alive past about 14 weeks or so. And again, this is due to their rapid growth and their very large size. And it just puts so much strain on their little hearts. Now, I have seen people who rescue broilers or, you know, they went to Tractor Supply or Rural King and they ended up with broilers instead of a laying hen and they're already attached to them. So they try their best to keep them alive. And I've seen people keep them alive up to about a year and some people have even managed to get them past a year. But you have to do this by very carefully controlling their diet because they will eat everything you put in front of them. And you also need to encourage them to exercise, which kind of goes against their nature because we've bred them to be slow and docile and stupid. So if you don't want to kill them because it hurts your heart, because you're attached to them, you do need to consider the possibility that you might be inadvertently hurting them by keeping them alive, particularly if you can't you know, keep them on that careful diet, encourage them to get exercise, make sure that you're doing everything you can for them to protect their little hearts. Now, 
some people might argue that dying of a heart attack in a loving home is better than going off to be slaughtered. I mean, that's that's a fair point. So really, however you look at things, please just remember, you know, when you're reading other forums or listening to podcasts that we likely all want the same thing, which is what's best for our birds. And we might just have different ideas about what that ultimately means. And that's okay. Um, I like to say, you do you. And when you do that, be as ethical as possible. So I'm not saying that keeping a broiler alive is wrong. I'm not going to say that. I'm just saying there's things to look into. And please be mindful um, that everything you're doing is, is with the plan for giving that bird the best life that you can. Um, and really, the biggest issue for me as to whether I go ahead with this project is um, it's just about what I can achieve over the winter. And by this, I mean that uh, I have long been meaning to build a chicken tractor for my current chickens. I need one for the special needs girls and a much larger one for the main flock. Um, I've also been meaning for a long time now to get my reptile basking enclosure sorted so that I can safely put my reptiles outside for natural sunlight as this is the best source of UV for them which is essential for their growth and bone health and for synthesizing certain nutrients. And those projects really need to be my priority because I didn't get them done this year. I didn't get them done the year before. I really, really want to focus on those. Now, if by some miracle I get all of those built in time and I'm in spring and I haven't started my beekeeping craziness yet, then I will get that meat bird tractor set up and we'll go from there. So the final topic that I want to discuss today that caught my eye is uh, Muscovy ducks. So this is my ducks oh my section of what has become kind of a rambling episode. Now, once again, I was listening to another homesteading podcast and I'm afraid I can't remember whether it was We Drink and Farm or whether it was a podcast called Anywhere, which is a really great podcast that I just found um, set in Nebraska, hence the N-E where. And uh, so I apologize that I can't remember which podcast I was listening to. I will link to both in my blog because I do recommend that you check them out. But one of these podcasts was talking about duck species. And something that really you know caught my attention was that they mentioned that the Muscovy duck aren't part of the mallard genus, which is like almost every other domestic duck that we that we have. So to clarify a bit, the mallard is a type of dabbling duck, which, how adorable is that? I love that that's a, an actual type of duck, is the dabbling duck. Um, and it's part of the family Anatidae in the genus Anus or Anes. I'm going to assume it's Anes, whichever, which literally means duck in Latin. And you're probably very familiar with the mallard as a species because if you're thinking of a duck right now, it's probably the mallard. It's that classic duck that you see at most uh, ponds and lakes and stuff. So the females are kind of brown and speckly and the males are white brown and have those glossy green heads that are very striking. Uh, Also, mallard is used to refer to males of some duck species just to keep it confusing. But when we refer to mallard breeds... Um, That basically means uh, any duck breed or species that's in the genus Anus. And there's a lot of them because the mallard 
is kind of considered the father of all domesticated ducks. So most ducks that you come across as a homesteader or, you know, if you're looking for a pet duck are likely related to the mallard. And in fact, the mallard breed very readily with other duck species to the point that they're considered invasive in a lot of areas because of their genetic introduction into wild duck populations, which basically means that when a mallard breeds with another duck species, they produce fertile offspring. And those offspring can often threaten to outcompete the original wild duck species, which means that we see the wild duck species start to lower in population and these hybrids take over. And in terms of trying to maintain our natural populations, that's obviously not very desirable. So basically, if there's a duck that's domesticated, it's probably related to the mallard. But then we have the muscovy. Now, the Muscovy duck is also a dabbling duck. Once again, adorable phrase. I want to say that all the time, dabbling duck. So it's still part of the family Anatidae, but it's part of the genus Carina or Carina. I'm not entirely sure on pronunciation, so I do apologize. Now, the Muscovy is a large, very unique looking duck um, that you can easily identify by red fleshy growths that are called caruncles, which is another fun word to say, above their beaks and around their eyes. Their feathers are a mixture of black and white and their beaks can be pink, yellow, black, or a mixture of all of those. The males are much larger than the females and can reach a whopping 15 pounds, which in comparison, the mallard duck male tops out at 3.5 pounds. Now, female muscovy ducks are also large for a duck, but much smaller than the male at 6.6 pounds on average. Now, the large size of this duck is likely a big part of their appeal as they've been a meat bird for many, many years. Uh, They are sometimes called the Barbary duck when discussed in a culinary sense. And uh, muscovy ducks are said to have a stronger tasting flesh than mallard species of domestic duck. And the taste has sometimes been compared to roast beef, which as a Brit sounds delicious. And the flesh is also supposed to be much leaner and less fatty than other ducks, which makes it very desirable. So the muscovy is a great meat duck and it yields a larger amount of delicious lean flesh. Delicious, right? But the downside to this is that because they're so large, muscovy ducks grow slowly compared to other ducks that are raised for the table. So it can take about 20 weeks for a muscovy male to reach peak slaughtering weight. And this species is known for having an absolutely voracious appetite. So you're putting a lot of money into feeding and maintaining that bird. In comparison, the popular peaking duck can reach slaughter weight by seven weeks, but it is also smaller at about seven pounds to the muscovy's 15 pounds. But again, that fast growth means that it's probably more economical for a per pound payoff. Now I've noticed that the muscovy ducks seem to be gaining popularity among people looking for pets or kind of an interesting face around the homestead. I've seen them mentioned in growing numbers on local livestock groups and on homesteading blogs. And I think some of this interest is because the muscovy is very quiet compared to other duck species. 
uh, they're sometimes referred to as quackless and they just don't make as much noise. Um, instead, their vocalizations appear limited to like hisses and other softer, breathier sounds, which is a big advantage if you are homesteading in an area where you're relatively close to your neighbors. Now, I've seen some people claim that the Muscovy is a good livestock guardian for flocks of chickens and other smaller, more vulnerable birds. And then I've also seen people say that they're useless as guardian livestocks. Uh, guardians of livestock and that generally speaking if you want a large bird to protect your chickens you probably want like a goose Um, because geese take no shit from anyone and will run down people and foxes and all kinds of things Um, so basically I think you couldn't get a muscovy to guarantee that it would be good at uh, guarding your territory but it that's not to say it wouldn't be I, I would you just have to give it a go I guess I, I can't seem to find a general consensus about whether they excel as livestock guardians or whether they suck at it but one thing everyone agrees on is that Muscovy ducks are excellent mothers and very very good at raising their cute little offspring so this basically means you don't really have to incubate You don't have to worry as much about raising those ducklings in the house. You can let the mama do her job. And I've also seen reference to the fact that uh, Muscovy hens will will adopt other species of bird babies and raise them as well. So that's kind of cool. They're also um, very good foragers, which means that obviously they eat a lot and you will be feeding them a lot of feed. But it's great to know that they're going out and they're foraging and maybe you're saving a little bit of money there. Uh, They're also known to eat mice, which is great if you are suffering from a mouse issue in your coop. And they're also extremely hardy. So despite the fact that they actually come from warm climates, they're native to Mexico as well as Central and South America, they do very well in cold weather, which is a great uh, choice for those of us in the North. Um, And Uh, apparently they are exceptionally hardy to the point where it can get into the negatives and they're still actually doing pretty well. Another advantage is they actually roost up high like a chicken. So this means that uh, they're less vulnerable to predators at night and it means that they're using vertical space which saves you ground space which is something that you usually need quite a lot of with other duck species. Now, Muscovy males, aka drakes, can be bred to mallard hens. About 40 to 60% of eggs produced from this pairing will be viable, but all offspring will be sterile. Now, these hybrid offspring are called mullards, which is just so uninspired, um, and are supposed to be a good meat bird, and it's often used for, I hate saying this, fowl... Sorry, uh, far gras, the uh, controversial delicacy of duck liver produced by force feeding the bird grain during its short life. Now, what I did find interesting about the hybridization of muscovy and mallard ducks is that the Wikipedia article that I was reading mentioned that um, you can take muscovy hens, breed them successfully to mallard drakes. But the offspring are said not to be desirable for meat or egg production, but it doesn't say why. Do they taste bad? 
are they too small and therefore not worth the hassle of hybridizing the two species? It, it would be nice to know, but there was no citation or anything. So if anyone out there happens to know what happens to the hybrid produced from a Muscovy hen to a Mallard Drake, I would love to hear from you. And also, if you wouldn't mind, could you go to Wikipedia and um, edit the article, put in a citation or something? That would be great because I'm very curious now. Uh, but anyway, um, the point is, is that if you have mallards already, you might consider getting a Muscovy male to breed to your mallard hens and have offspring that are good for food. So while I was looking into this bird, um, I did find a really, really great blog post from growingwildroots.com on some benefits to keeping Muscovy ducks, which I will link on the blog. And in that article, she also mentioned some downsides of keeping Muscovy ducks. So definitely check it out. Um, I also found Wikipedia to generally be a good resource for this. And I obviously took from a couple of other websites and just tried to verify the information that I found. So there you have it. Bees and chickens and ducks. Oh my. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me for this slightly disjointed and rambling episode. Uh, I hope it was at least a little interesting and maybe I have piqued your interest in some of the topics discussed today. I'm definitely going to dig into them more, particularly the Saskatraz Honeybee project because there is so much information available and I just can't wait to like sink my talons into it. Now, I am hoping to get my next episode up before Christmas, but I haven't settled on a topic yet. Um, I'm leaning towards maybe talking about keeping quail, both as pets and as a meat bird or for egg production, since that's a bird that I have been considering for a while. I do have literature on it and... Um, I found an Instagram account of someone who keeps them as pets and uh, it's been very interesting. And as always, I'll have updates about what's going on here. But if during the race towards Christmas, I'm unable to get an episode up, I will make sure to let everyone know via my various social media accounts. Speaking of, you can find me at Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram and Facebook, Homestead Hens on Twitter and Tumblr, and homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. As always, I will have my blog slash website link in the episode description so you can find um, links to articles and sources, pictures, things like that. And please do leave me a comment, drop me a line, send me an email anytime. Um, I'm delighted to say that I finally got accepted on iTunes and Google Play after much kerfuffle. Yay! So if you would be so kind as to leave me a review over there or wherever you listen, I would greatly appreciate it. Apparently, it helps me get seen by others, which would be great, as I want to discuss bees and chickens and ducks, oh my, with everyone. And I always love hearing from you. In fact, I would like to give a very quick shout out to Anna G, who sent me through my website the sweetest message about how she's been enjoying my podcast. And I have to admit, I was grinning from ear to ear when I read it. I was dead chuffed. Thank you so much, Anna, for being a listener. I'm so glad that you enjoy my podcast. Um, I was particularly tickled that you uh, mentioned that you binge listened because I am a horror for that. If I find a podcast that I love, I go right 
right back to episode one and I just listen to everything in order until I catch up, which can sometimes take a long time because I'm often slow (laughs) to getting to the more popular websites like We Drink and Farm. Uh, So I love the fact that you binge listened. Thank you so much for getting in touch and um, I hope you stick around. So thanks, Anna. It was lovely to hear from you. To everyone else who's listening, I really appreciate you all so much. Thank you. I am enjoying getting this opportunity to just talk to to you about bees and chickens and homesteading. I would talk someone's ear off about bees if they let me. And that's a huge part about why I started this podcast to begin with, because people would ask about bees and I'd start talking and I'd see their eyes glaze over. And I just felt like... Uh, I felt terrible. I didn't want them to feel inundated by information, but I'm just so passionate about bees and chickens and everything else um, that I can be a little overwhelming. So here I am. I get to talk to people who are actually interested from the start. As you head into the home stretch of the holiday season, I hope that you take care of yourselves and that it's not too stressful and that you remember to take some downtime because you absolutely deserve it. So thanks again for listening. Um, I hope to talk to you again in two weeks. If not, have a very Merry Christmas. Have a very happy holiday. Um, Even if you, you know, if you don't observe the holidays, we really call it giftmas around here because we're not religious. Um, I hope that you do take the time out, have some fun, grab some Chinese food or some turkey and just, you know, take time to be with people that you love. And as always, hug your hens. And then wash your hands. Ta-ta.